This episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast is brought to you by Tony Robbins Results Coaching. Are you ready to experience an extraordinary quality of life? Or maybe you're already doing well, but you know you can take your life to a whole new level. To do that, you have to set yourself up to win. You need a process, a way to consistently grow and produce the results that you need. That's what a Tony Robbins Results Coach can do for you. Whatever area in your life you want to change, your relationship, your health, your career, your business, coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. Tony Robbins Results Coaches are hand-selected and trained by the master of coaching, Tony Robbins himself, to have the skills that will empower you with supreme focus, powerful insight, and the accountability needed to achieve everything you've ever dreamed. To help you get started, Tony is offering podcast listeners a free results coaching strategy session with one of his top coaches. It's a $200 value, and you're getting it for free. Visit TonyRobbins.com results. Schedule that free session today. Think about the last time you spoke in public. How did you feel? Confident? Eloquent? Or did your nerves get the best of you? and end up dampening the efficacy of your message. What about a pitch you gave to a potential investor? How did that go? Or maybe it was a presentation to your colleagues during an all-hands meeting. Was it what you'd hoped it would be? Or more importantly, did it achieve the result on them that you wanted it to? There are so many instances and situations we find ourselves in that could potentially be great opportunities for growth and expansion, but we end up fumbling and not living up to our potential. Why is that? and what could we do to execute when it matters the most? Today, I'm sitting down with performance coach and advisor Todd Herman, who has worked with Olympic athletes, business executives, and billionaires, helping them to find the tools and skills they need to reach new levels of greatness. Todd and I are going to dig into the power of alter egos, or what he refers to as secret identities, and how they allow us to magnify certain parts of our personality when we need it the most. Because we do have the capacity to create who we wanna be in any situation, And we have the potential to reach any and all of our goals, as long as we learn how to get out of our own way. Hey, Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. So I wanted to start with a fascinating concept. Um, You talk about alter egos and secret identities and how there's something that everybody has or should have and how important they are to both our personal and professional lives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, my, my background in uh, sports, my very first business that I started was working with athletes um, on the mental game and doing sports science research. And over the course of the first couple of years of working with athletes and then, you know, slowly, just like kind of any maybe person who's dedicating their, their you know, professional life to something, you start to rise up through the ranks and you get closer and closer to working with other pro or Olympic athletes. And I happened to uh, get there really rapidly. And a trend started to develop in those very private conversations that I'd be having with people. And and again, I wasn't doing, you know, group type workshop type stuff typically with teams. I was starting out really with one-on-one work. And um, throughout that course of working with people, like I said, there was a trend that was developing. And in those conversations, it just, people weren't necessarily mentioning the word alter ego or secret identity, but there was this um, other version, a lot of times that's how they would say it, this other version of themselves that they would step into. And a, uh, a, the pattern that was developing was the people that were really performing at the highest level, uh, and, and when I say performing at the highest level, not just people that were at, in the pros, but were also the ones who were 
maximizing every single ounce of capabilities and skills that they had, a great many of them had this other version, this alter ego, this secret identity that they would step into. And then when I started reflecting back on my sport background and my experience, I was used, I used the exact same thing when I played sport. Um, I had essentially two, because I was a college football player and I had uh, this trifecta of different alter egos that I was stepping into. And one was um, this amazing defensive player, Ronnie Lott. Another one was Walter Payton. And then this third one, which kind of combined them all together, was actually I was channeling, I was a real Native American nerd. And <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I was channeling um, like this warrior mentality. So those were my alter egos that I was stepping into. And then, and then I kind of connected the two. I thought I was really doing it out of just sheer imagination and creativity. But after speaking with these top performers, I realized it's actually a very natural part that um, human beings will, a very natural part of the human experience that we will use in order to get ourselves out of our own way. Because many of us carry around insecurities and judgments and, and, and things that cause us to maybe play small in life. Um, like if I took the normal version of Todd onto the football field, I would not perform to the level that I need to in order to you know, win the game and compete. And so over the course of time of talking with everyone, I started to formulate this basically five-step process that you walk through in order to, um, A, create your alter ego, and then the second one is actually step into it consistently. So is the idea with alter egos then to have a certain personality type or being that you are that is designed 100% to help you achieve the goal that you have in mind? Is it to block out the other distracting parts of yourself that might um, prevent you from reaching that goal? Yeah, it's, it's, it's there for many things. Uh, one is, and it's not so much really goal-oriented, it's really field of play or stage. Um, uh, it's, it's, to, it's there for that field of play that you're going into and that field of play demands a certain amount a certain performance and skill that sometimes might conflict with the real the kind of the quote-unquote real version of you so if you're uh, i'll give you a great example so one of my athletes that i worked with um she's a pretty well-known tennis player and exceptionally good at what she does i mean you have to be if you're gonna be playing at the pro level and be ranked and she, but in her just normal everyday experience, she's an extremely nice person. And fairness is a really important value to her. So when she would go out on the tennis court, she would go and sometimes right off the bat, she would start dominating someone. But then over the course of, you know, multiple games or sets, she would get up quite a bit. And then because fairness is a big part of her value system. Mm, it bothered her. Yeah, she would yeah. actually start to, quote unquote, sabotage herself. And she would allow that person to, you know, get back, get back into the game. And sometimes, as we know in sport, momentum is everything. And despite the fact that she's quite a bit better than this other player, she would, that other person has momentum and confidence, and now they end up beating her. And she didn't figure that out. And it wasn't until we started working together where I said, no, like, you need to keep that person, that version of yourself on the sidelines and you need to be stepping into a different version of yourself because on the field of play, really in competition, fairness doesn't matter. 
not not in not in the context like fairness in that yes you can have sportsmanship and things like that but fairness in that you need to allow that person to get a certain amount of points so that they're not humiliated that that has no place in in real sport and competition yeah and that is, that is a quality that on another field of play is is extremely important extremely important exactly and so crafting this other version of herself so that she could go and truly perform to her capabilities started to allow her to really get the results that she knew deep down she had the capacity to create. But internally, she was stopping herself because of this, you know, really understanding the field of play that you're going on and what is needed to compete or to win at it or to do well at it or perform. She was sort of counteracting it with, you know, some of her base values. So what is, you know, how do we find our secret identity? Do you start by identifying first those fields of play? What's a little bit of the process? Yeah. So, um, so I mean, I'll run through the kind of the the five steps just really, really kind of quickly for people. But the first one is the first step is what I call like the personal limiter analysis. And this is just a process where you're taking a good, hard diagnostic look at yourself and you're saying, okay, well, where do I limit myself? Um, you know, and, and how in the way that I'm limiting myself in my profession. So if my profession is getting out and getting in front of people and I avoid doing, you know, if you're in sales, I avoid doing cold calls or I avoid going out to networking events, um, that is limiting you from getting your value out into the world. So it's just, that's just like one quick example, but what are all those ways that you're limiting yourself? How are you hiding possibly on your field of play? And so we just create a list of those things. And then the a next step is what I call then the talent magnifier. Okay, so when you take a look at the people that you really respect possibly um, and in your field, what are their qualities that you respect about them? Or what are the, what are the talents or the qualities that are needed in order for you to be successful at what it is that you're going out to do? So a basketball player's talents and skills would look different than a hockey player's, just like it would be if you are a, you know, a venture capitalist here in New York City would look different than someone who is a real estate professional in San Diego. So what are all those talents and skills that are needed in order for you to uh, be successful at that? And just, again, listing those out and then also seeing if you can find them in other people. You know, all of us have sometimes, I mean, I did. Um, maybe I don't want to love everyone else into my world, but uh, I think a lot of people have imaginary mentors or, you know, people that you read about in books and you kind of, I mean, I did, I had these imaginary conversations with those people as to, you know, what would they kind of say to me if they were coaching me or, you know, how would they advise me on some sort of decision that I had? And, um, anyways, I, we're having those conversations with those people because we respect them and we're, you know, we're in some ways would like to be them. So identifying and, and, and finding those talents. And then also finding the talents within yourself because a big part of the alter ego isn't about being fake. This is not about being fake at all. Because um, the reality is, and I asked, I, I asked uh, you this question too, you know, uh, before we were on air, when you think about Clark Kent and Superman, who is the alter ego? Who is the secret identity? Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've asked this question to like large audiences of people and a lot of people will say, well, Superman is. And it's true. Clark Kent is the alter ego. Clark Kent is the secret identity. Um, the real version of Khalil 
is Superman, the guy who goes out there and saves the world and stops the speeding train from hitting the car and, you know, the plane from plummeting to earth and all that kind of stuff. And so, but, and my um, argument in life is that most of us are supermen or superwomen, but we walk around in these disguises of Clark Kent's so that we're accepted. Because the only reason he's Clark Kent is so that he would be accepted by society, so that he wouldn't be ostracized, so that he could walk among the mere mortals type of thing. Sure. Well, I think something, though, with Superman is that he can surface because he's needed, right? So Mm -hmm. if there's a sense of urgency that 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 self has to be present, then, Mm -hmm. then he'll come out. But a lot of people don't have the sense of urgency or this idea that, that they need to be that person. Yeah. Well, I I would argue that they, they, they do, they might not have the, the the clear sense of urgency, but I think they have a rotting sense of urgency. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's, there's there's this, there's these parts of themselves that are really eating away at a, a great many people's uh, self-esteem and self-confidence. And I'm not talking about just quote, like just average people. I mean, I've worked with some of the top performers on the planet. Like a lot of Tony's clients are very similar to my clients, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, multimillionaires or billionaires, or it's pro athletes and Olympic athletes, they're ambitious people. And they come to us because they just, they're looking for that. What's that one extra little percentage point? And so they're 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 dealing in very small percentage points. The average person is dealing in big percentage points, but they're still stopping themselves, and it's slowly rotting away. And I think that's a more painful experience than you know, you know, uh, what is it? The uh, the death of a thousand paper cuts is kind of most people's experience uh, on life. And and so this, yeah. While Superman has this sense of urgency, I think other people have it as well. And I think in the sense of urgency that we can all frame it in is that, you know, when you think of all it is that you do inside of your career or inside of your business, not everything is about you getting out onto a field of play or standing on a stage, but there are a core select skills or core moments where you really do need to perform in order to move that needle forward in your business or as much more. And that could be speaking on a stage that could be, you know, going through a negotiation that could be doing a presentation that could be even creating product or service or something like that. Those aren't, those don't take up your entire day, but they are critical moments in, in a day or in a week that if you did have a, you know, more magnified version of your talents come out, you are going to get a way better result. And I, I I've just done this for coming up on 16 years working with the alter ego concept. It just, I've seen people transform in a day. It's, it's, truly amazing when you embrace a concept and you run with it. Yeah. So, what um, so what they, was one of the, I'd love to hear one of those examples of somebody who just had a really dramatic change in a very short period of time. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I'll, if I go back, I'll, you know, I'll just round it off with the, the tennis player. So after we even had our first um, conversation around this, there was something that clicked in her head. And, and it does for a lot of people that I've talked to that I don't even work with one I haven't even worked with one-on-one to walk them through this process, but even in presentations that I've done. And it's that we don't forget that when we were children, we were naturally doing this. We had phenomenal imaginations and an ability to step in to these fantasy worlds in our head and play out a role and, and not do it without worry and do it without the worry of 
judgment and criticism. And what this does is it taps back into the playful nature that all of us truly do have. And for her, that's exactly what it, what it was. And then when we sort of walked through and, and, you know, talked about the rest of the process, she found her, you know, quote unquote origin profile, which is the, the third step of, you know, what her backstory, what, what the kind of alter ego's backstory, just like Khalil or Superman has a backstory, you know, adding some depth and some color to the alter ego um, and where it came from is an extremely healthy part of it. And even from a neuroscience perspective, when you think of uh, bits and bytes and data and, you know, features and ad features and advantages on a product, that's all just almost bullet pointed information. People are moved by emotion. So putting a backstory, because you already have a backstory, like Anna has, you have a backstory you carried around with you every single day. Sure, we all well, do. Yeah. And so why don't we create a powerful backstory to that alter ego as well and just flesh it out? Like, where did this come from? And why, why, why do you step on the court with just this absolutely laser-like focus of, um, performing to the absolute maximum ability that you have. And, you know, how do you move when you're on the court? Do you move on the court slightly differently when you are this person, um, altered version of yourself and sort of just really fleshing it out anyways, for her to make a long story short, her next tournament, she didn't win it. That'd be a great story if she, but she, for the first time she actually made it to a finals wow. when she was kind of the perennial, really good player who never made it past the third round. And it was, she came off of that, out of that finals experience with such a phenomenal level of confidence and just tremendous, just self-belief and satisfaction because she finally conquered the one thing that always stopped her, herself. Not the other player, not the court, not the weather conditions, not the umpire, herself. And, um, she's had, you know, this, I worked with her, that was like nine years ago and she ended up retiring and having, a, a, a really great career in tennis. So, um, and then on the, uh, on the, on the business side of things, cause this isn't just for sport. I don't want people to just sit there and think, well, this, this sounds right. This sounds like it's something that could be for entertainers or athletes, but for the business professional, um, what about, you know, that, well, uh, one of my clients here in New York City who was starting to build up a large uh, investment company and was getting to the point where his leadership capabilities were starting to be challenged, where he really didn't see himself as a leader. Like he was technically excellent at what it was that he did, which was finding deals and um, negotiations and things like that. But now he was running a, a large group of people. But he was getting in his own way because he wasn't perceiving himself as a strong leader. And then that would start to affect his team as well. And he just was turning into an angry, angry individual. Uh, and, and through the process of just sort of walking through this, his, his core origin profile, who he got inspired by, was his uh, grandma, who was an immigrant who came over with kind of the classic immigrant story of very no money to very little money. She didn't have a husband because he had died in uh, World War II, and, but she had nine children. And she brought that entire family over on her back 
raised nine amazing children, one of them his uh, um, father, all to be successful in their own rights. And he just saw her as this like iron rod up her back who would just not allow any circumstance to dissuade her from the vision that she had for her family. And so when we were just walking through this process, for him, he has a, a photo of his grandmother on his desk and every single day he connects with that sort of spirit, which he knows lives inside of himself. And anytime he's going into and making a leadership type decision, he just takes a moment to connect with that and then steps into it with that as his sort of um, emotional arsenal to kind of get past his own you know, shortcomings that he had. And now, and just like I say with all people that use an alter ego, there comes a point in time where you don't need it anymore. It helped you get past that point where you were typically the one that was getting in your way and then you don't need it anymore, which is great because you've now embodied it. It's a very natural part of who you are. Mm. Is that part of the fourth steps for putting it back when you're done with it or is there something different? Well, I mean, I, I don't actually have it a part of my, my steps necessarily <laughs> where uh, the sixth step is, you know, you don't need it anymore. Yeah. Um, I sort of leave that in the individual's hands because you know when you, you know when that moment happens. Sure. Uh, and, and honestly, you don't even know when the moment is. It, there comes a point in time where you've been doing it so naturally for about six months or a year or several years, and you're like, "Wow, I don't need this thing anymore." And and there's a reason uh, why I say this because the fourth step is using something that I call the artifact enhancer, and that is uh, using something that you either wear. For me, actually, use a, uh, a pair of glasses. It could be a ring that you put on. It could be a bracelet. Wonder Woman has a bracelet that she puts on. You know, um, uh, uh, superheroes they use. You know, masks. Batman wears a mask. So it's something physical that you can put on, um, or it can be something that's just on your, you know, on your person type of thing. I know I've got a, a client of mine who has a polished rock that he has had for a long time that he carries around in his pocket that was that is from his grandparents farm and ranch where he went to it and again another person who is extremely connected to his grandparents because of the type of people that they were but he carries around that as a reminder and as a trigger that he uses or there's something in your physical environment you know some athletes it's being triggered by when you go and step on your field like or the court so it's either something you wear something you have with you or something that you have in your environment that's going to allow you to step into this alter ego. And yours are your glasses? What did, what did My, they do for you? <laughs> because uh, um, I, I tell people this, and this is actually, this is, there's a nuance to this. You don't go around and share with other people that you've got an alter ego. This is a very private, personal thing. You know? And so I'm going to pull back the curtains on myself um, because I'm the you know, person who talks about this, which is, you know, and I'm fine with doing it, but my glasses that I wear in business, they're fake glasses. They, I've got 2015 vision. I've got like perfect eyesight. <laughs> I started out in, you know, business when I started my, my sports performance company when I was 22. I, I mean, I looked like I was 13 and I was, had this massive insecurity about, you know, I'm 22 and I'm getting in front of people talking about, you know, peak performance and getting into the, like, building the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete. And yet, you know, I look like I should still be in grade nine or something. And so I had this insecurity around whether people were even going to listen to me. But I 
you know, because I had already worked with alter egos in sport, I started to think about how I could leverage that in, in business as well. And when I was growing up in my small little rural town in Western Canada, um, in the farm community that I was in, my, in my grade was, uh, this guy, Mark, and he was brilliant. He was super smart and he happened to have glasses in my sister's grade, who's a year behind me. She had someone in her grade who was also exceptionally smart, James, and he had glasses. So I started to adopt, and we all do this. I started to adopt at a young age that people who wear glasses are smart, right? Or they look smart and all that stuff that comes with it. It's like, well, if I just look smart, maybe people will feed <laughs> me. So I used it as a tool, right? And and so I, I went out to a eyewear shop and I bought a pair of fake glasses. And I remember going in there because nowadays people wearing glasses as um, a fashion, you know, accessory is very common. Back sure. then it was. So when I went into the lens crafter shop and, uh, and bought the glasses and they said, well, what's your, and what's your prescription? I said, oh, I don't have a prescription. They looked at me like I was absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yep. I can imagine, you know, contact lenses starting to become way more popular and people are trying to stop wearing glasses. And here I am coming in and putting them on. And uh, so anyways, when I, but when I put those on, I, I put them on in a very deliberate way and they meant something to me. There was meaning behind why I was putting that thing on. Just like when uh, Clark Kent takes off of his glasses, I was using the reverse. I was stepping into a version of myself that gave me power, just like his Clark Kent glasses. When he took them off, he became Superman. I was just reversing the, the, the field essentially, but it was all those things that I knew that I didn't quite have at the time. I didn't have a lot of confidence. I wasn't very decisive and I wasn't really articulate with my, my messaging. Well, when I put on those glasses, I was stepping into a person that was confident, decisive and articulate. And I would sit there and I would practice that, practice that over and over and over again, getting the feeling of what it's like to be confident. Um, and I would borrow that confidence from the other things that I knew I was already confident in. Uh, and, and that truly helped me get past myself and my own insecurities so that I could get on, onto the quote unquote field of play and share the insights that I had around, you know, becoming a better athlete. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So, so, so that, yeah, that was step four. And then I kind of joined up with step five. Step five is what I call the immersion experience, which is really goes hand in hand with step four is like, you know, when you, when you do have that artifact and I am putting on those glasses, you know, um, I know that, uh, Tony talks about, that altered state that you're stepping into mm -hmm. the experience is very much a similar thing when you're putting on those glasses or when you're putting on that ring, I've got a, an equestrian uh, client that she has a wonder woman bracelet. And when she puts that on, it's, it's you being extremely intentional about the person that is showing up in that moment. And so that you can get the results that you're looking for. And that is really, really key with all this. I think most people go into fields of play and a field of play, just so I don't confuse people. It could be your home, like where your family is. That is a field of play. Like my two little girls and I've got a little boy that's on the way. They don't really need dad to be confident, decisive and articulate, right? They need right. someone who's playful and patient and fun. So when I go into that field of play, I'm trying to be very intentional about who is showing up in that on that stage and uh, so that I can get the best result, which is, you know, having children that are, you know, calm and confident and, you know, you're just allowing their personalities to come up. Sure. 
So if you talk about immersion and these different experiences, I mean, I think of it in terms of temperature in a sense, right? We're all very comfortable at room temperature, but going from a, a cold plunge, for instance, to a hot tub, that's a big shift. So if you're going, you're shifting from one sort of identity that you need to be in a particular field of play, say from the workplace, and then you go home and you're in your home and you have your children, you're walking in through that door, that's a definitive moment where you're going from one to another. Is it hard to identify other shifts, right? Because people have to be flexible to be able to go from one to another, but sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. So how do you tell your clients how to understand those different fields of play and how to shift from one to another in a seamless way and something that doesn't feel uncomfortable, like they're literally going from being one person to another? Well, I would love to say that it's easy to do it, but the reality is you're supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You're learning it's something hard. new. Yeah. Like, I mean, it would be, um, you know, complete, I don't want to swear, but it would be bull crap um, for me to sit here and say, oh, no, there's totally ways where I can make it more comfortable for you. No, it's not. Like, you're learning something new. And, and, and it's not that you're learning something new. You're experiencing something that you've forgotten more than anything else. And because you, you, you've already done it. We've all already done it. We've already pretended to be something that we're not. And the reality is most people are pretending to be someone that they're not by the way that they're going around their days and not taking the action that they know they want to take because they have just a, a, a pile of stuff that they've accumulated over time, whether it's other people's ideas or other people's beliefs or just um, the, the worry and stress over whether or not they're going to be ostracized in their little tribes. Like, you know, a lot of this stuff that, why why we act as human beings the way that we do goes back to just simple human evolution. I mean, when you think about 10,000 years ago, the way that human beings lived, we, we needed to live inside of tribes and because that was there for safety from just the elements and the dangers that were out there in the world. And inside of those tribes, we didn't want to you know, upset the apple cart. We didn't want to be the, the weird one because we would be ostracized and then that meant death, essentially. So most people still carry around a lot of that in the way that we behave for fear of being ostracized. And yet the world is far more nuanced now. Now there's like these small little tribes where being weird is completely celebrated. I mean, I tell people all the time when they come to our workshops or events and, you know, Tony's would be no different that, you know, like, I hope you guys all recognize you're freaking weird people. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. It's only been recently that that's been embraced. Yes, yeah. exactly. Only recently. And so, and I mean, I remember, uh, I think it was the, the front page of a Time Magazine article back in maybe the early 2000s um, around how weirdness and being a nerd was now cool again mm -hmm. because of the software industry and, and things like that. But uh, sorry, kind of going a little bit off tangent, but to, back to your point, no, like it, it is about being uncomfortable, but over the course of time, you're going to start to get the results that you truly want. Like I want to step into a stage that is my family life where um, there is a ton of laughter and there is just a lot of fun that's happening. And I get to witness and see a lot of like growth and exploration and new experiences for my kids. And I want to dominate them though, you know, and yeah. the person and the way that I am in business would end up dominating them. I don't need to be a dominating father. I see this a lot because I've done a lot of work with Navy SEALs, um, Army Rangers and whatnot, where, where they typically come off of their field of play 
and they carry that into the home. You know, how many stories have you heard from people say, oh, I grew up, my dad was a, you know, a captain in the army and it was, everything was like, you know, strict rules, this, 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 and this. And there's a lot of value in having a lot of structure in the home, but you don't need a drill sergeant to come home and be a drill sergeant with the kids, right? Like it's understanding that there are nuances to your life and then designing the version of yourself that you want to be showing up in each of them. This, this is, this is one of the great things that makes us humans. We have the capacity to design things. We have the capacity to create who it is that we want. I want to create a nuanced individual because I am nuanced. And you're already like people are already showing up in different ways. When you went home for the holidays, I bet it was a different Anna than is around her friends when you go out and have um, a drink or go bowling or whatever the case is, right? Sure. We, We all take parts of ourselves and in certain situations, we start to magnify a part of our personality. That's what this alter ego factor secret identity um, philosophy is about is just you, you already are doing it. Now let's just be way more intentional about the person that we're creating so that we can truly get the results that we're looking for. Yep. Yeah. And I love the fact that you <clears throat> bring up the idea that a lot of your clients are using artifacts from the past um, that are tied to, you know, their childhood or people they admired when they were younger, because that's something that we're so transient nowadays, right? And we shift so quickly from our hometown to university, to our first job, second job, we're just moving around constantly. And a lot of people have, you know, I've been to weddings, for instance, where nobody knows each other because the bride and groom have been through so many different stages of life and they've lived all over the place. And so they have friends and identities from each of those time periods. And it's interesting that a lot of people are choosing to go back, way back to their childhood to find these artifacts that are parts of who they need to be in those different fields of play. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, to, to your point too, there's also, um, other areas that we can leverage for, for the artifact. So yes, for the artifact, people totally leverage that a lot. Like a lot of, um, clients use inspiration from their past, like way in their past more than probably any other era. Um, but then also when it comes to like, understanding and, and, and forming and shaping your origin profile, you know, leverage fiction. I mean, I've got a client here in New York city. She's a young little, uh, uh, racquetball superstar trying to come up, but she was very similar to the lady who was in tennis, uh, who was just, she's just a great kid. She's just super nice. And she was taking too much of that onto the court. She wasn't really having that killer instinct. And so in our first conversation around this, uh, I was, you know, like, who do you think has a killer instinct? And she immediately went to, now she's a, she's a, a young Jewish girl. She really resonates with, uh, this character Ziva David, who is in, who is that? Uh, Ziva David is, a is an actress or is a, is a character in, it's not, uh, it's not CSI, but it's one of those kind of crime shows. Mm-hmm. Yep. Kind of in New York city. Anyways, Ziva David is a, like a badass um, former um, Israeli operative who knows Krav Maga and is just, mm. you know, a full, she's a powerful, strong woman. And that's who she steps into. That's who her alter ego really is, is actually Ziva David. And that's what she calls herself on the court is Ziva. That's interesting. So um, I, want, I have a question about the you know, how does this translate over into the business world? And I know there are a lot of ways that we've talked about your the identity that you step into in the business field of play and how that helps you, right? But is there a parallel, right? So if you have different identities to different people and different fields of play, 
because you necessarily have to. On the business side, so let's say if a business were a person, right, there's been so much emphasis around building a business and a brand identity and how important it is to be consistent to every single one of your customers. Every single touch point, you want to be consistent and you want to be very clear about who you are as a brand. Do you think that there's a possibility that businesses themselves need to be adaptable adaptable to meet the needs of their various uh, consumers in the same way that individuals do. And if so, how, I mean, how would you go about doing that? Okay. So I just want to make sure I got the question right. So sure. you know, should, should a business adopt, you know, a similar identity for, for themselves, despite the fact that sometimes they need to be flexible with, how they're showing up? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so we do it now when you look at businesses that go into other countries, right? So there's yeah. a certain level of localization and customization that you need to adapt in order to fit into a different culture. Um, but is there something, even on a micro level, that you've seen businesses do or you think businesses should be doing uh, in order to be adaptable and be flexible instead of being stuck to their brand guidelines or the way that they communicate with their customers or the products that they have currently? Yeah, you know what? You bring up an excellent point, and that is, um, uh, people have always just because of the background of working with athletes and talking about mental toughness. And you know, one of the first questions people ask is, you know, well, what would you define mental toughness as? And I'm, this is going to loop back around to the question itself. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, mental toughness is your ability to be flexible and adaptable, despite what the circumstances around you and situations are giving you. If you're firm and fixed, if you go into a if you go into a, a game. And you're so firm and fixed on this is how the game is going to play out. This is how I'm going to perform. And I'm going to get a goal in the first period or I'm going to you know, score 15 points in the first quarter or whatever the case is. And then it doesn't start happening that way because there's, there's an ebb and a flow to matches and games. Then most people will start to respond emotionally in that moment. That's mental weakness. That's the mm. epitome of someone who's mentally weak. You're not able to be flexible and adaptable despite what's happening in the game so that you can continue to perform at your peak. Yeah, you know, it's similar just, to conversations or business meetings, right? There are people who, you know, you start a business meeting, things aren't going your way. And the definition in that case of mental toughness is adapting and shifting the conversation so that it does have a positive result. Absolutely. And so what you find is the, per the person in a business setting who has maybe the most experienced, the person who has the most skills, the person who knows multiple ways to get to the agreement that they're looking for will find a way to be flexible. They, they, just, they just have more skills at their, disposable to make, to disposable, at their disposal to make that happen. So to your point, I think of brand identity of, as being not something that is firm and fixed. As soon as you think that you are one thing, as if it's a goal, like a goal, you want to be firm and fixed. If, if my goal is to climb Mount Everest, I'm going to be firm and fixed on that. That is my goal. But I'm going to be sure as heck flexible and adaptable on how that happens because sometimes a weather you know, pattern comes over top of Everest and sits there for six months and no one can climb to the top. Mm -hmm. Well, mental weakness would be breaking down on the hill and throwing a tantrum and saying, I'm going to climb up anyway, and then you end up dying on the hill, right? That's, yeah. that's mental weakness, you know? So the same thing goes with our, our brands. And take a look at Kodak as an example. Kodak was not flexible and adaptable. They created the digital camera for crying out loud. They created digital imaging. And yet they didn't 
become flexible and adaptable in the marketplace. They stayed firm and fixed on, no, this is who Kodak is. We are the film company or you know whatever they were saying in their meetings. And then they ended up becoming a dinosaur in their industry. Sure. So, I mean, there's so many know. businesses, right? There's a whole graveyard of businesses who didn't adapt. And Tony actually has a whole map. It's the seven triggers of a business crisis. And it talks about change in technology, change in customer uh, lifestyle, change in culture, change in even, you know, your own employees uh, life stage. So there's definitely ways that you can and should be anticipating and reacting and remaining flexible. Yeah. And so and, and to that point, then, when you take a look at your brand identity, yeah, you're right. Like when you go into a new market, there are some eccentricities. There's some rules that operate inside of that culture. I mean, I've worked in 82 countries around the world. I know that I can't take the same version of myself that's in America, where in America, it's okay to go into a meeting and just start talking about business. Or when you first start meeting someone, you can start talking about business. Mm-hmm. You go into Saudi Arabia or you go into the Middle East. You're going to have tea with someone for 90 minutes. You're going to get to know that person, find out about their family. It's not, that's not the culture. And in fact, it would put someone off in that culture if you tried to operate that way, right? There's nuance to this stuff. So, um, yeah, to your point, I think that you know, people in the business sense can absolutely adopt this, but then make sure that there is flexibility and adaptability built into it. Yeah. So Todd, I wanted to ask you, because you just mentioned you've been in 82 different countries and you definitely have a a full plate um, between clients and public speaking. Um, Where do you get, not the energy to do the work you do, because that's like physical thing, but what's, where, what's your, what drives you, right? What's your purpose? What really, as Tony would say, what lights you up? Um, What's your purpose for, for all the work that you do? Uh, Good question. So um, I'll go back on the physical energy thing. I actually think that uh, a lot of what motivates me or I get so much mental and emotional energy out of it. Like that's, that's probably mm. more real energy than any physical stuff is because, you know, even, you know, interviews like this, I mean, you get to meet and talk about interesting things and uh, meet interesting people. So I'm motivated very much by two things. Uh, one is my family name. My family has a very thorough, uh, what's called a family Bible. Uh, we have our history traced back um, almost a thousand years and uh, on that's on my mom's side. Wow. So about 12, I think it's, no, it's 1156. Um, and I'm just fascinated by where my family has come from. And what carries me forward is the idea of legacy. Uh, I want to, whatever impact I can make on the family name, make it something that's better than what it, what it was before. So some people say, you know, I want to leave the world, you know, slightly better than when I came here type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I make it a little bit more personal because the world is a really big concept. And um, I happen to be one of those people who's very fortunate to have a, a great family. So I want to make our family name more memorable. And that could be in someone has one interaction with me and they, you know, maybe they don't forget that interaction and it leaves an indelible impression on them. That's what motivates me to, you know, be better every single day than I was the day before. And then the second thing that motivates me tremendously is just people in general. I love finding out more about how people tick, you know, what causes them to do what it is that they do. And especially those, and, and actually at the polar ends of the, uh, the equation, those that have really struggled, what is it that they're doing that's causing them to struggle? Um, 
you know, what's in their past, those types of things. And then those people who are succeeding, whether they're doing it naturally or unnaturally, you know, what is it that makes them tick as well? I'm just fascinated by that experience. Yeah. Is there anybody, and this is a bit of a bizarre question, but you did mention your family goes back pretty far. So I'm thinking about, you know, past eras and the world we live in today is full of very ambitious people who have access to people like you to podcast information and they can really, you know, even if they're high achievers, they can, like you said, make incremental changes to achieve even more. Um, is there anybody from like history or from the past or different eras that you think, um, you know, a former version of yourself or if you could go back and, and help that person you think would make a huge impact? I go back in time. <laughs> I know. It's such a cliche interview question, right? But you just got me thinking because you were talking I, I about like, your family. Yeah. Yeah. It challenges. Um, oh, you know what? So my 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 grandfather my mom's mom my papa uh he was one of the first athletes in the 1920s to ever be drafted into the nhl and major league baseball and, wow so um, back in the day when people didn't focus on one sport since they can walk yeah and, yeah exactly and so he was just a really amazing athlete and uh he was he packed up his bags and he was coming to i think he was coming to new york um, for the tryouts with the Yankees. Uh, and this is coming from Canada. And he got to this, he, he walked out the front door and he got to the sidewalk and then he looked back and he had just, um, married my, uh, my Nana. And he looked back and he walked straight back, put down his bag and said, I can't leave you. And he didn't pursue the sports or the baseball. I mean, they had a phenomenal love story. I mean, they were married for 75 plus years. And, uh, so going back and just talking to him about that experience would be amazing because someone who's so good at what it is they do sport wise, yeah. willing to give it up because of, you know, something else that they're even more passionate about, um, would be interesting. I don't know if I would, I wouldn't be changing anything with him. I don't think, and I wouldn't convince him otherwise, but yeah, I think that would probably be it. I don't know if anyone in history I could really, uh, yeah. But I, he, know, I, I mean, know. he is history and he's your history. I think that's a great answer. And I think that's a challenge too that so many people face now is making a choice between two things that they are passionate about and they know they can be successful in. Um, and that's a very dramatic example. But this is something, you know, you make decisions every day about you know, your relationship and your family and your business, what are you going to pay attention to? Because you just don't have enough time or energy or focus during the day to, to, you know, do everything. So I think that's a really challenging one. I think you, you, it's, it's such an interesting conversation too, because, you know, it's something that I experience all the time. I mean, I'm a massively ambitious individual and I am constantly uh, being uh, confronted up against just my other responsibilities. And, and that is, I mean, I have another, I've got other ambitions that go beyond business and that, that ambition is wrapped around just being a phenomenal, you know, father to my, my kids. And, you know, just that in and of itself is a, you know, a battle that, you know, I struggle with almost daily with it too. So yeah. And I wouldn't even be going back and saying that, Oh, he made, I wasn't even saying it in the context that, Oh, what if he could have been the, the most amazing two sport athlete ever because Oh yeah, of course not. The other side of it was that you they had this phenomenal 
marriage and they were just two just completely outstanding upstanding citizens that would take people in during the um the depression and during world war ii and you know husbands were away or when people just didn't have jobs and they would take them in and people would live with them my mom would tell stories of people living with them for you know sometimes up to a year because they didn't have a place to go and they would give up their master bedroom for these people and they would sleep on the couch like they're just it, it doesn't take very much to motivate me when I think about just those sacrifices that they would make and the types of person to make me want to bring that same level of, um, you know, attitude or value into the businesses that I have too. Cause my businesses are just an extension of who I am. Sure. Right. So, um, yeah. That's great. I don't know about my, our audience, but I have massive goosebumps. <laughs> I think there's just something about stories like that, that, uh, yeah, it's it's like a level of like you said, self sacrifice and uh, and love and generosity that you just can't help but be inspired by. And in your case, you know, it's see, wanting to be at that level and then even raising it a bit, right? So making it even better. So it's interesting. Um, well, Todd, this has been a wonderful interview, and uh, thank you so much. Um, is there a place where our audience can go to learn a little bit more about your method or to um, maybe contact you for speaking or for coaching? Sure. So I have a very analog life. They <laughs> can walk to New York City and then, oh, uh, knock on a door. No, so they can go to simply toddherman.me, mm -hmm. and um, you know that's where they can have links to other podcasts that I have and just other information and, um, you know, reach out there. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Todd. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The Tony Robbins podcast is directed by Tony Robbins and hosted by Anna York. Carrie Song is our executive producer. Tyler Colbertson is our associate producer. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock and Mary Buckheit for their creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.